What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this video I'll be answering 7 interesting subscriber questions which cover a bunch of investing and finance topics. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. Finally, please consider hitting the thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. Okay, the first question comes from Ben who asked, What do you think about the AT&T Discovery News? Thanks for the question, Ben, and since you and about 20 other people asked me a similar question across every social media platform I'm on, I'm going to give a longer answer than I normally do in these videos. The TLDR is I'm holding, as I mentioned on my Discord on the day the news came out, and holding seems to be a contrarian move relative to what most people seem to be doing, which is selling. First, let me say that the information I'll share is based on my understanding and analysis of the situation without knowing if things will play out like I think they might, so I recommend you do your own research. So what happened? Well, AT&T announced that they're planning on spinning off their Warner Media business to merge it with Discovery, the TV streaming company, thus creating a new major media company I'll call Warner Discovery for now, which in many people's opinions could compete with Disney and Netflix. I actually announced this probable deal on Sunday, both on my Twitter and on my Discord, based on a Wall Street rumor blurb I saw, which ultimately came out to be true as they announced it to the world on Monday, which was when I posted it on my YouTube community tab. AT&T will receive $43 billion in cash and miscellaneous from Discovery, and AT&T shareholders will receive stock worth 71% of Warner Discovery, while Discovery shareholders will own the remaining 29%, and this would happen about a year from now, assuming the deal passes regulators as well as a Discovery shareholders vote. They predict that Warner Discovery will have 2023 revenues of $52 billion, adjusted EBITDA of $14 billion, and an industry-leading cash flow conversion rate of 60%. That's over 2x the revenue of Netflix, but they will also have $55 billion in debt, which is three times what Netflix's is. We don't know if Warner Discovery will pay a dividend, though most people think probably not since that will limit their ability to grow and because it wasn't mentioned. One good thing about this new media behemoth is that I think they'll have more content than anyone in the world, i.e. over 200,000 hours worth, and for comparison I read that Netflix is at 36,000 hours. But even more importantly than quantity of hours is quality of content, so let's look at what Warner Discovery would have. First, they have AT&T's Warner Media, which has three big content segments, which are number one, Warner Brothers, so Harry Potter, Batman, and other DC stuff, some aspects of Lord of the Rings, the Matrix series, and some other blockbusters. Side note, The Matrix 4 is being released later this year concurrently in theaters and on HBO Max, so I'm super stoked for that. Number two is Turner, so that's TNT, CNN, Cartoon Network, Turner Classic Movies, and TBS, which carries Major League Baseball and NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament and stuff. Number three is HBO, so that's Sopranos, The Wire, Game of Thrones, and the new Game of Thrones prequel series that I'm also super excited for. Then we have the Discovery side of Warner Discovery, which means the Discovery Channel, HGTV Home Improvement Network, The Food Network, Animal Planet, and a bunch of others. So going back to my comment about Warner Discovery not only having the most content, they also have some of the best content. Discovery also has a global footprint, so that's another plus for Warner Discovery's growth potential. Now for reference, HBO Max currently has around 45 million subs, and HBO estimates that they'll be at 150 million subs by 2025, and Discovery currently has around 15 million subs, while Netflix is around 205 million. My family and close relatives all love Harry Potter stuff, and my wife loves the Food Network, so I'm sure I'll have a subscription with whatever happens. Also, some of what Discovery does is called linear TV, i.e. non-direct-to-consumer, which are cable TV shows, including live sports and news about world events happening in real time. So even though cord cutting continues to happen, some people will always want live events like sports and news. 
Anyways, if this transaction happens, it means that if you hold AT&T or Discovery stock in your brokerage, then next year you will also get some new Warner Discovery shares, kind of like what happened with Pfizer and Beatrice recently. So far so good, but then AT&T said their dividend would be resized to account for the distribution of Warner Media to AT&T shareholders. After closing subject to AT&T board approval, AT&T expects an annual dividend payout ratio of 40% to 43% on anticipated free cash flow of $20 billion plus. So that basically means that in a year, AT&T would cut their dividend by potentially around 50%, which seemingly would mean they would also lose their aristocrat status we all love. And in exchange for that, you would get some new shares in Warner Discovery. But there is a lot more to it, some of which I don't think people thought about, which I'll elaborate on. Before I do that though, I want to acknowledge that I can understand people who feel like this is a slap in the face because of AT&T's long-time history with their dividend, combined with the fact that on March 8th, AT&T's CFO said, with $26 billion of free cash flow after CapEx, there's plenty of money to pay off the dividend. And then on March 12th, the current AT&T CEO said that they were committed to sustaining the dividend at current levels and utilizing cash after dividends to reduce debt. To me, that's a big negative mark against this new CEO, who has downplayed how important the dividend is to income investors. That being said, you could sell your new shares of Warner Discovery and then buy more shares of AT&T to mitigate the cut, partially, fully, or if this new company is a real competitor to other streaming players, then if you sell those shares and bought more of T, you might actually end up with more dividend income than you had before the announcement. But still, the news of the probable dividend cut is what caused a bunch of people to sell. Now, when AT&T bought Time Warner, I was hopeful that AT&T would be able to integrate and monetize their new acquisition, but it turns out that they couldn't, kind of like the failed DirecTV deal. I knew that acquisitions can be risky, and my biggest concern was actually the debt, as I've mentioned in multiple videos. Anyways, AT&T's new CEO, along with Elliott Management, which is the activist investor who came on board to unlock shareholder value, both decided that the monetization opportunities keeping Time Warner weren't adding up as they originally hoped. So AT&T's previous CEO effed up on some of their acquisitions, and now the new CEO is trying to fix that, even though he was part of the exec team that got them here. I often give both credit and blame primarily to CEOs, as they have by far the most influence over what a company does, so even though this new guy was part of the former executive team, I've personally experienced how radically different people can be when they are the ultimate decision maker, versus when they're reporting to someone else who is. I don't fault anyone for selling out of AT&T, and I feel for anyone who is in retirement and was very reliant on AT&T's income and has gotten scared by the news. But hopefully after you hear my thoughts you can see another way to view this transaction that might diminish your fears a bit, and either way this is an example of why I think it's prudent to diversify your stocks and income streams. Big disclaimer, this is not financial advice. Don't buy or sell shares based on what I ever say. I can be wrong, so do your own due diligence. So when I look at this current deal that AT&T plans to do, I think it will be better for shareholders as time goes on, though I think the messaging has been terrible and potentially misleading. And of course a dividend cut of any type feels crappy. I believe AT&T will use the $40 billion plus proceeds from this transaction primarily to pay down its massive debt, as well as will position itself to enable their 5G build-out faster. This should leave AT&T focused on its core competency, which is telecommunications, and it will create a powerful new streaming competitor to Disney and Amazon and Netflix and such. I'd guesstimate this transaction will bring AT&T to around $130 billion in debt before other AT&T debt reduction measures that are planned. While that's still a ton, it's important to mention that Verizon's debt on their website as of March 31st was about $163 billion, so this would be huge news to finally have less debt than their main telecom competitor who also has a dividend. And I think AT&T will also be able to have a higher EPS growth percentage than Verizon, along with a lower payout ratio, which means a safer dividend. And based on all that, I'd bet that AT&T will also have, on average, 
higher dividend increase percentages going forward relative to Verizon. So let's look at some of the numbers. Let's be conservative and assume that Warner Discovery doesn't pay dividends, though if they do then this picture probably becomes better. I read that the Financial Times estimated that the enterprise value of Warner Discovery would be $132 billion. Warner Discovery has a 2022 estimated adjusted EBITDA of about $12 billion and is potentially up to $14 billion in a few more years. If we get a bit conservative and lower that enterprise value sum and subtract debt, then let's value them at around $100 billion, which would then give Warner Discovery an enterprise value to EBITDA which was lower than Netflix's. Thus I could see Warner Discovery being at $10 a share of T, and I see T shares becoming more compelling relative to its prior self due to the reasons I mentioned plus some others I'll share. Anyways, my estimated total value to AT&T shareholders would be $40 per share in total, which is around a 35% increase from where we are today. So I not only get the nice dividend that they currently have for another year, but I think I can also get a quick 35% additional return in one year. To me that's an awesome potential return in a relatively short time frame, and in one fell swoop AT&T addresses the number one issue people have with them, which is their debt, and the number two issue, which was their anemic growth. Of course, maybe it takes longer or maybe I'm incorrect. But more people than me have arrived at a similar conclusion that the deal is great for shareholders. A UBS analyst just pointed out that the payout you could get if you simply sold your Warner Discovery shares as soon as you get them could be equivalent to 5 or 6 years of AT&T's currently juicy dividend, paid out all at once, tax free, in a lump sum payment. And as you know, the time value of money now versus the future makes that worth even more. So you could say that's like an additional 8 or 9 years of fat dividend payments on top of the additional year we have until the transaction even happens. So that's kind of like saying you can get 10 more years of AT&T's existing dividend paying out, on top of dividend increases they'll probably do at a higher rate than they did historically. 10 years is both a blink of an eye and a massive amount of time. I won't be eligible for Social Security yet, but getting that kind of cash in a tax-free lump sum sounds compelling to me as someone who values cash flow. Now, maybe I'm wrong and my estimates are too rosy, but it's good to be aware that I'm being more conservative than some professionals. For example, whereas I estimated a quick 35% return from AT&T, Bank of America thought the deal could represent up to a 50% return due to number one, greater scale, number two, new synergies, number three, a pure play evaluation on the media assets, including the combined HBO Max and Discovery Plus, and number four, reduced exposure to the cash flow burden of future content investment. And they aren't even mentioning things like less debt, a lower payout ratio, and faster percentage EPS growth than Verizon. But there are professionals who hate the entire deal and say sell, 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 like Kramer from Mad Money. Anyways, I like how I can hold what I have now, get my juicy AT&T dividends for a year, then, if I'm correct, get a big payout which may be equivalent to many years of dividend payments, which I can then choose to reinvest or do whatever I want. Lots of options. It's also important to mention that John Malone, the billionaire businessman who owns a buttload of Discovery, like over a quarter of it, is also on board with this transaction. He said AT&T's new CEO is appealing, and he is delighted to fully support this transaction without asking for or receiving a premium for his high vote shares. He also said, I believe we are creating real value for shareholders and a legacy investment for my grandkids. He apparently agreed to relinquish his Discovery voting shares to merge with the company with Warner Media, as he believes in it so much, and apparently he is known for being very friendly to shareholders, and thus is well respected amongst them. By the way, John Malone also happens to be America's largest landowner at 2.2 million acres, even more than Ted Turner. Though his land pales in comparison to Queen Elizabeth, who owns 6.6 .6 billion acres around the world, which is about one-sixth of the land of the entire planet, putting her at the number one spot in the real estate list, with number two being King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who controls 547 million acres. Another large landowner isn't a person at all, 
It's the Roman Catholic Church which owns 177 million acres of the 37 billion acres of land in the world. Okay, I'll stop nerding out on real estate and we'll tell you about another positive aspect of the AT&T transaction that it's good to be aware of. I read on CNBC that Mullen agreed to turn his shares for common equity because he wanted to give the combined Warner Discovery Company the flexibility to sell itself in the future, most likely to a deep-pocketed technology company like Amazon or Apple or someone. So to say that differently, part of the strategy with this transaction seems to be to prepare Warner Discovery to be bought by someone else, which would again probably further inflate Warner Discovery prices up even more than I'm estimating. I think even Disney would try to buy Warner Discovery, though I don't think regulators would allow it. If some big boy like Amazon or Apple did buy them out, then my estimates of an already high return could be blown out of the water. So while I can understand how some people feel that this transaction is terribly shareholder unfriendly due to the unexpected dividend cut, I think there's an argument saying that it will actually be better for shareholders than staying on their old path. Anyways, all of that is a lot of ifs, so I considered simply selling my tea and moving into Verizon, or doing a hybrid approach of selling some tea and buying some VZ, because I want at least one telecom dividend play in my portfolio. I feel like either VZ or T is reasonable for my needs, though I ultimately decided to go with T due to what I think will give me better short, medium, and long-term returns, and because I feel my portfolio can handle me being wrong, which I sometimes am. And why do I want a telecom play in my portfolio? Well, I kind of feel like I'm the conductor of an orchestra, which is my portfolio, and each stock has a role it plays. So I like to have my strings, my woodwinds, my brass, my percussion and such to create the music I want. I have a slew of reasons for how I built my portfolio, and I don't expect or want the same behavior for each stock I hold. Some I'm looking for more dividend growth, some I want more current yield, some I want to cover a specific sector, some I hold for greater price appreciation, etc. So a telecom play fits a certain risk and return profile that I like in the symphony of my income, which meets my needs now and which I estimate will meet my needs in the future. And of course, it's possible that T-stock drops and Warner Discovery flops, thus if you hold it, you need to be prepared for all the risks. So what should you do? First, don't do what I do or what anyone else says. Also remember that what I say in videos is worth precisely what you pay to watch it, which is zero. Second, analyze the situation. Double check the data. Figure out what your portfolio needs now and down the road. Research, and then do what you think makes most sense for you. The market is a fickle mistress. I have zero ability to predict the future, and yet I still try. Whatever you do, don't sell or buy based on emotion or fear, or what others are doing or are not doing. I applaud anyone who actually analyzed things and then made a decision for themselves to sell or whatever. I.e., I don't care what you did as long as you analyze things more than just watching a YouTube video or reading a Wall Street Journal article or whatever. What I want for you is to always invest based on what you think makes sense for you after you do your own analysis and you factor in your own financial realities and risk tolerances and beliefs in the future and such. And then congratulations for doing that. This also isn't to say that you never sell stocks. I did a video on reasons why I sell, and a dividend cut is often a big reason to consider selling. But as you heard in this video, investing is rarely black and white, and I concluded that it wouldn't make sense for me to sell because I now have more confidence in getting a nice return than before, even though I have less confidence in their messaging, and I'll miss them being an aristocrat. So hopefully that wasn't too long-winded and answers your question. Okay, let's move on. My second of seven questions comes from AwaysJ10, who said, Hi, what's up? Love your videos. Do I have to pay tax on dividends less than 47 grand if I have them on Robinhood brokerage? Thank you, brother. Stay safe. Hey, dude. So the answer is maybe. You didn't tell me a ton of information I need to hear to answer you better. Like what kind of dividends you hold? Where do you live? Do you also have wage income? Are you married? Do you have a mortgage, etc.? I don't think Robinhood has IRA accounts, so we can assume that you're talking about a taxable account. 
I'll make a few assumptions about you in order to use this helpful tax calculator from MoneyChimp.com that I'll include a link to for everyone. I selected the 2021 tax year and assumed you were filing single with $0 in wages, but you had $47,000 in qualified dividends because if there are MLPs or REITs or BDCs, then things can be different. Here we see that you would owe $0 in federal income taxes, which shows you the beneficial tax treatment the IRS gives towards dividends. Let's compare that to if you made $47,000 in wages but made nothing in dividends. So now you would owe $3,935 to Uncle Sam. I gotta admit, he's my least favorite uncle. Now let's see what you'd owe if you made 47 grand in wages and you made 47 grand in dividends. Now we see your federal tax goes up to $10,074. In fact, it looks like if you made any more than $6,078 in wage income, then you would start owing federal income taxes if you also made $47,000 in dividends. I actually did a video called How You Make More With Dividends, where I show you other tax situations like this and how a married couple can make over $100,000 a year in qualified dividends and yet owe $0 in federal income taxes. So hopefully that answered your question. Let's move on. My third of seven questions comes from FJX who asked, I own a portfolio of individual stocks, but people have invested in index funds and gotten a higher return. Should I sell my positions and buy into index funds? Hey dude or dudette. First of all, it's awesome you're investing and even thinking about these kind of things and I'm sure you'll do great over the long run. Now for most people, I think the smartest thing to do is just go with something like VTI or VU. You could also do a hybrid approach and own some single stocks and some inexpensive broad market ETFs. As always, be careful of tax implications if you do decide to sell. Without knowing more of what stocks you own, at what prices, and what your goals are, and yada yada, it's hard for me to answer. The reason that I like single stocks is that I found out that it really motivates me to own specific companies, and that motivation has kept me engaged and stoked to invest for decades. I've found that when investing excites you more than buying crap, then that's a strong sign that you'll end up doing well financially. Okay, let's move on. My fourth of seven question comes from GFG26, who asked a bunch of questions, but his main point was he's been looking to get a job, but has given up after applying to about 20 places. Now he's thinking of starting a YouTube channel and wondered how much a channel can make. Hey GFG, so Gary V has some great advice when it comes to getting a job, which is to apply to hundreds of places, not dozens. Keep trying to improve as you apply to more jobs, whether that's working on your interviewing skills or your resume or whatever. Second, be persistent in a non-annoying way. Gary tells the story about a guy who applied to a job where he found out that thousands of people had applied to it. He then got selected to interview on-site with a handful of other people who also made it to the second round. Then he made it to a third round interview on-site along with just three other people, but he didn't get the job. This guy ended up writing a letter to everyone in that final group of interviewers asking what he could learn or could do differently next time. Surprisingly, one of the interviewers asked him to come back on-site. When he got there, they offered him the job. It turns out that they told every single one of the final four candidates that they didn't make it, but their real plan was to find a salesperson who would turn a no into a yes. And he was the only one of the four who didn't just walk away. Look, I get how it feels to send out dozens of resumes and get no bites. I've been there. Don't forget your network, as the easiest way i found to get hired is by having an inside person pulling for you. A good way to live your life is always be the person who is trying to help others while asking for nothing in return. The best secret I can give you about networking is when you meet people, try to figure out how you could possibly help them rather than try to find people who can help you. Trust me, if you do that, there will come a time when tons of people will be there to help you when you need it. Now in terms of YouTube, I can tell you from my personal experience that it's way more time consuming than I originally anticipated, but it's also a lot more fun. A simple rule of thumb for how much money you can make in the finance space is $1 per subscriber per year once you're monetized. 
that's a massive generalization and it varies dramatically based on how many views you get if you offer courses or do Patreon or get affiliated income or whatever. It also varies between the type of channel you run, but I believe finance has the highest returns per view on YouTube, whereas gaming channels are lower, as a random example. So when I see someone who has a finance or investing channel on YouTube with 100,000 subscribers, I usually think that they're making around 100k a year. Some make more than that and some make less, but that's a reasonable way to guesstimate things. I've also seen countless investing channels start and quit since I started almost two years ago, so it's really no different than any new things that people try, like working out. A bunch of people start working out hard as part of their New Year's resolutions, and then within a year you barely see any of those new people still going to the gym. I read a stat that said 95% of businesses fail within the first two years, and I'd bet you that's in line with new YouTube channels. But if you keep working at it, if you don't give up when you want to, if you stay persistent, if you focus on yourself and don't worry about how others are doing, and you keep trying to learn and improve, then I can also say I'm confident you will keep growing to a point where you're making decent money. If I were you, I'd keep pushing hard at finding a job, and then additionally I'd start a side hustle, like YouTube. Okay, let's continue. My fifth of seven question comes from Harriet, who said, Hi, I'm confused about something. I see that executives can get stock options, but it seems like everyone can. What's the big deal, lol? Hi Harriet, I think I know what you're asking and why you might be confused. So there are usually two different things that people are talking about when they mention stock options. First is when people are talking about buying and selling calls and put options, which grant you the right, but not the obligation, to buy or sell a stock at a set price on or before a certain date. A call option gives the holder the right to buy a stock, and a put option gives you the right to sell a stock. So most people who are talk about doing options are talking about trading those calls and puts in their brokerage. However, you also hear about executives who get options. In that context, it's talking about when a company grants an employee, be it an executive or not, a bunch of shares, which are often called restricted stock units, aka RSUs, or are options, which is the right to buy or acquire stock at a specific price, which is usually way less than the stock's actual price. Often a company grants a specific amount of shares, and each year that the employer remains employed, then they're entitled to some additional percentage from that original grant, kind of like how your 401k vests 20% each year for your employer match. Those stock option grants are also called golden handcuffs, as they're a retention strategy used by companies beyond other things like salary and benefits and whatever. Stock options and RSUs are usually how execs make most of their compensation in companies, way more so than their salaries. Sometimes they get options awarded to them for hitting certain goals that their boss or the board of directors gives. So they might tell the CEO, you can acquire 100,000 shares of our company if you manage to take the stock price to 100 and keep it there for three years. Or they could say if you stay employed with us, then we'll give you the option to buy a total of 10,000 shares of our stock at $50, regardless of what the stock price actually is. And each year you can get up to 20% of the total amount. It's called a stock option because you have the option whether you want to acquire the shares or not. Why wouldn't you acquire them? Well, they might offer you the shares at $50 a share, which at the time they originally granted them was great. But by the time your shares have vested to the point where you could get them, maybe the stock has fallen below your option price, making that option not useful to use. You would then probably just sit tight and hope that the stock price goes up so that you can exercise your option in the future. Oftentimes when the stock price is higher than the option price, which happens frequently since stocks tend to trend up, then people sell them the same day they acquire them in order to get a big lump sum cash payout, which can also have tax implications. Okay, hopefully that answers your question. The sixth question comes from Ted who asked, Hello, would love to hear your opinion on stablecoins as a yield grab. Many platforms yield 8% to 12% APY, compounded monthly. This seems like better overall value as most high-yielding equities yield much lower and very modest capital appreciation. Thanks. Hey Ted, 
A simple rule of thumb that I found to be true is that with risk comes reward, and there is never any guaranteed things or ways to beat the system that last. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is, and it just means there is more risk involved. Risk in the sense that maybe what you're wanting to do is new and doesn't have a long track record of success, or risky maybe because there's so many chances for it to fail. What we see happening in the crypto space lately shows again how volatile crypto can be. I personally urge people to prioritize stocks over crypto, but I think a small percentage of your investment dollars in crypto can be worth it as a high-risk play. I'm getting a decent yield on my ADA and DOT and my staked Ethereum, and I know some people on my Discord who are playing some of the various crypto yield strategies, and they say they're doing well. But I'd wager that a 10% yield crypto play won't be as solid as a 10% total returns J&J play. Okay, last question. This one comes from Jean-Philippe and is a bit like GFG's 26s. He said he started a side hustle, a YouTube channel, but his views are terrible. He's bad at thumbnails, he thinks his voice sounds terrible, and other people who started at the same time are doing better than him and his sub count isn't growing quickly. He asked a ton of things, but I'll just summarize it to say, is there anything I could help him with? So first I'd encourage you to join my Discord. I have a private channel just for YouTube creators to chat with one another. The fact that you started a channel puts you ahead of people who just think of starting a YouTube channel but don't do it. So congratulations for that. I heard this inspirational talk by Simon Sinek who said you shouldn't focus on all the things you can't do and instead you should focus on where you want to go. Of course, me telling you not to do something can be like me saying, don't think about pizza. Suddenly all you think about is pizza. Sinek explained that the way that professional skiers navigate through trees is by not focusing on the trees and instead just focusing on the path where they want to ski. He said if your main focus is on not hitting trees, then you will invariably hit them. So it's good to analyze things you're weak in to improve them, but don't dwell on your weaknesses. Focus on how you can make your next video better. Can you do your fades a little better? Can you have a friend critique your audio honestly? Ultimately be yourself as you want to build an audience who wants to hear you, not someone else. Also, while subs are a fun metric, even more useful are views. It's crazy you can find channels with a ton of subs that get very low views. Never try to get random people to join your channel, as you want people who are really interested in watching your content, not some random person who gives you a sub but then never watches. Also, it's important to look through all your metrics YouTube exposes to you, like your click-through impressions rate and how long people are watching your videos and such. Okay, now I'd like to shout out my latest Patreon aristocrats who have recently signed up. So thank you Minor Casualties Reported, and thank you Barker. As an aristocrat, they gain access to my new dividend spreadsheet and to multiple private channels on my Discord, including one where I sometimes talk about my growth portfolio and I let people watch my videos before I release them to the public, as well as I often let you vote on which thumbnails I should use for my new videos. And since you watched this video all the way to the end, I'll tell you a funny story. A young businessman had just started his own firm. He rented a beautiful office and had it furnished with antiques. Sitting there, he saw a man come to the foyer. Hoping to look like a hotshot, the businessman picked up the phone and started pretending he was working on a big, important business deal. He threw huge figures around and made giant commitments. Finally, he hung up and asked the visitor, Can I help you? The man said, Yeah, I've come to activate your phone lines. <laughs> so if you appreciate crappy humor, then please consider hitting the thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. If you'd like me to potentially answer a question of yours in a future Millionaire Dividend Investing Questions and Answers video, then follow me on Instagram at GenXDividendInvestor and DM me your questions. Finally, I highly recommend that you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it and is growing all the time. Thanks, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.